Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I'm a professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Today, we're excited to welcome Jonathan Rodin of Stanford University. The urban-rural divide is such an important part of our politics today, and we hear so much about it. And Jonathan is someone who's done a lot of in-depth work to really think about the dynamics of this divide. He's a professor of political science at Stanford. He's written extensively on a wide range of topics, the comparative political economy of institutions, federalism, political geography, legislative bargaining, and the historical origins of political institutions. And we're going to kind of kick off our conversation talking about his 2019 book, Why Cities Lose, The Deep Roots of the Urban-Rural Divide, published by Basic Books. Thanks for having me. So, Jonathan, I'm really excited to have you on to talk about Why Cities Lose, which I think is a really kind of fascinating book for a whole bunch of different reasons. And I want to first maybe get you to describe what is the overall argument of the book and specifically, how are you challenging the way that people usually talk about party politics and representation in the United States and the kind of underrepresentation of both urban areas and Democrats more generally? Yeah, the book really does two things. And those things kind of come together to help answer your second question there. The first part of the book is just trying to understand the the rise of the urban-rural divide and and just understand when did population density come to be correlated with uh, voting behavior, and then when did that relationship start to really increase. And then the second part of the book tries to understand the implications of that for representation and makes the claim that not only in the United States, but in several other democracies that use winner-take-all single-member districts, the party of the left, which started to become a relatively urban party, usually sometime around the Industrial Revolution, uh, has become more urban over time, that those parties tend to have their support highly concentrated in urban areas. And not only is it the case that there's a correlation between density and voting behavior, but there is this asymmetry such that the votes for the parties of the left tend to be highly concentrated, more so than the parties of the right. So there are not rural districts that are nearly as overwhelming in their support for parties of the right as the urban districts are in their support for parties of the left, which makes it the case then that the support for the party of the left is inefficiently distributed in space when it comes to turning votes into seats. And so I do a lot of things in the book to try to show that that's the case and to demonstrate how that's changed over time. And kind of to answer your second question there, how is that a little different than the way we usually think about things? I think when I started working on this, the presumption was if we see an asymmetry in the transformation of votes to seats that favors the Republicans in the U.S., that that is a function purely of partisan gerrymandering. And uh, what I'm doing in this book is trying to show that it has deeper roots in that and it emerges also in other countries where we don't even have political incumbents drawing the districts, where we have independent commissions drawing the districts. Now, of course, it's possible to go way beyond that when when partisans can draw the districts. But there is this basic kind of geography problem that confronts parties of the left in a lot of environments beyond the United States. Great. Thank you. So 
I wanted to get a little bit deeper into kind of the ideas, the mechanisms really of the research here. I find that comparative insight really interesting and useful that this is not just in the U.S. context. And certainly, you know, where I live in Wisconsin, we talk about gerrymandering all the time. And I think that that's a really important point that this, you know, gerrymandering may be the case in certain situations, certainly it is here, but that that inefficiency is also built into these deeper political dynamics. So I want to get you actually talking a little bit more about kind of what these historical dynamics are, which is what I found really fascinating about the book. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the differences you found across different U.S. cities when you compare, you write a lot about Pennsylvania and the cities there and other cities within the U.S. kind of across different metro areas or even within different metro areas. You talk about some of those differences and kind of what does that tell us about the way that political geography works? Yeah, that's one of the things that I really wanted to take seriously in the book is the idea that it's not just having a correlation between density and voting behavior. It's really the, the specifics of how the votes are arranged in space that matter. And so there, it turns out there's a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot of variation across states in the U.S. and across cities. And this phenomenon that I'm describing where the concentration of support for the Democrats is really extreme in urban areas is something that we see the most in places that industrialized early in the 20th century that you might you might even call some people would call a 19th century city so a place where there was a manufacturing core in the center of the city uh, and there was a lot of working class housing built around factories and so there's a level of density in the urban core that then you know, kind of decreases as we move out into the suburbs and the rural periphery so I have in mind some of these uh, cities of the Northeast and the Upper Midwest that really have that quality. But then when I look at some newer cities that are more built up in the era of the automobile, like Phoenix, Arizona, uh, or we look at cities like uh, Orlando, this intense concentration of Democrats in the urban core is really not something we see in those cities. And even looking abroad at some Australian cities, which are very, uh, which are not nearly as as um, as dense in the urban core, and they don't have nearly the same density gradient as you move out from the urban core to the rural areas. Those places also are are less concentrated. So when we look at partisanship in a place like Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is located, uh, really it's much more of a partisan checkerboard. I mean, there are certainly Democratic and Republican neighborhoods, but we don't see the same level of extreme concentration of Democrats in the city center. And this is also the case in other sprawling places in the Southwest. Yeah. Can you say more about the precise mechanism there and what's sort of going on historically? You've got something in there about kind of walkability and factories and also the kind of party history. Yeah. When I was trying to understand this initially, I spent some time talking to and reading a lot about uh, urban form and the history of cities and and people who study the history of architecture. And one of the things I got interested in was the nature of working class housing early in the 20th century. And in a lot of places, this is an era when factories are being built and workers don't certainly don't have automobiles and public transit systems are still in their infancy. So a lot of demand for working class housing is in close proximity to the factories and warehouses and ports. And that's where we see the construction of the kind of housing that housed workers that eventually were mobilized by labor unions and joined these parties of the left. And that's that's kind of where the story, story starts, but it kind of gets more interesting as we get into the 80s and 90s when the class cleavage starts to decline in many of these cities. They're no longer working class neighborhoods, but yet 
the dense housing that was built for workers in the early part of the century ends up becoming housing for tech workers uh, and others in a very different kind of economic setting. And the fascinating thing is that the votes for labor parties in the UK and Australia or for the Democrats in the US stay the same or even go up uh, as this big transformation takes place. Yeah, so that gets us right into what I wanted to talk about. One of the things I found really fascinating is that you take this urban-rural divide that, as you point out in the book, a lot of people kind of identify with the U.S. and kind of the, the changes uh, post-civil rights and that, that people identify this as cultural, right? But you link it to these sort of more kind of broadly sociological but fundamentally economic differences. And also there's a party story. And I'm curious kind of what is the role, I guess, of the Democratic Party in the kind of transmission of your historical mechanism? What connects these workers at different points in time? And what connects uh, Democratic Party voting, even as the issues that are emphasized are, are different? Yeah, I think it starts with economics. I think it's really clear that it starts with this class cleavage. And that's when the correlation emerges. And I think that's kind of hard to argue with in the data. But I think that really doesn't answer the big puzzle, which is why this correlation has increased so much since the 1980s, uh, especially in the United States. I mean, the urban-rural divide in the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s, wasn't anything like what it is today. So we've seen this big increase, and it wasn't really because of an increase in the nature of class politics. So there's something else happened along the way, and that's that's. I think there's still a lot of interesting questions to answer about that. But the way I've looked at it is that we kind of start with this New Deal political cleavage, uh, and then as other issues emerge. Many times the preferences on those issues are also correlated with population density. And so as new groups emerge and they want new things from the parties, they start to mobilize and start to try to get the parties to take new positions on those issues. And it was very often the case that it was urban groups that pushed the Democrats to adopt their views or their position on these issues that really could have gone either way. I mean, either party could have, and in fact, in the 70s, it was very unclear which party would become the the party that favored or didn't favor abortion rights. But I think urban groups were pushing the Democrats to adopt you know, one set of views and rural voters and religious voters, which are more concentrated outside of cities, uh, were pushing the Republican Party to the right on the abortion issue. Uh, in the book, I also talk about race and the role of Black workers in, in cities who became valuable sources of votes for Democratic candidates in House races and state legislative races in cities, and kind of were the ones who pushed the Democratic Party to start adopting anti-lynching legislation and things like that. So it's really urban workers in the North that start to push the Democrats for becoming a party of civil rights, and then that starts to push this cleavage along. That's that's uh, Those are some ideas that really come from the work of Eric Schickler. On this question, but I think it's it's related. You can look at, at abortion, and most recently, we can look at free trade and globalization and immigration as issues that are correlated. People's preferences are correlated with density, and then they start to push the parties to adopt these positions that really only just kind of make the urban-rural divide stronger, and with with the rise of each new issue. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the South in your story, and kind of how how the South does and doesn't maybe stand out as an exceptional region, and. To the extent that your story is is one about enfranchisement of Black voters and sort of urbanization of you know, moving to cities, Black voters, um, does the erosion of the Voting Rights Act, which is sort of ongoing as you wrote this book, does that alter your story at all? 
Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, the big picture about the South, that we even kind of, we'll see, we'll come back around to the Voting Rights Act and maybe in, in trying to think about how this works. But the bigger picture, just the, the descriptive information about the South is that in the early part of the century in the, in, and still in the 60s, so before the Voting Rights Act, the correlation between population density and democratic voting was the opposite of what we started to see in the North. It was that the um, rural areas were more democratic than urban areas. And then over time, as this racial realignment takes place, we see the South slowly start to look like the rest of the country. But of course, there's this big exception, which is rural Blacks in places like Alabama and South Carolina, which, which are very strongly now aligned with the Democratic Party. But they're, they're some of the only rural places. When you make this density Democratic voting scatter plot, you see these real outliers. And most of those are Native American reservations and the rural South. But of course, there's still a high concentration of minorities in places like Atlanta and people moving from the north back to places like Atlanta and Houston and so forth. And so the Georgia urban-rural divide has really grown. And in some ways, the South has converged to look just like the rest of the United States. And that's one of the really important stories here is that the urban-rural divide was for a time a Northeast thing and maybe an upper Midwest thing. And then it has slowly kind of come to infect politics in the whole country, including the South. So then as for how does the Voting Rights Act play into this, you know, along the way, it's causing politicians when drawing districts to, to, to draw districts where minorities have the prospect of electing candidates of choice. In some northern cities, you don't have to try to make that happen. So in St. Louis, uh, where I'm from, you can just draw a pretty, a pretty compact, contiguous district in St. Louis, and you'll have a majority minority district without much effort. Of course, in Alabama, it's a very different story. And so these districts that are drawn in a place like Alabama give the Democrats more representation than they otherwise would have. But in a place like uh, Virginia, the big fight about the Voting Rights Act really is something that can be very useful to Republicans when they're trying to draw districts that attempt to minimize minority representation. And they, they can use the VRA or their interpretation of the VRA as a way of trying to minimize the, the number of, uh, of Democratic seats. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm speaking to you from one such district in Milwaukee. That's basically the fourth district in Wisconsin. It's the city. It's majority minority, African-American rep. Exactly the thing you're talking about is sort of packed with urban Democratic voters. As I said, we talk a lot about gerrymandering here, mostly at the state legislative level. Well, one thing I might um, just add is fascinating yeah. related to your, your question, as I think about it, is just this issue really has become central in many of the states of the Midwest, like Wisconsin, thinking of Michigan. And the task that the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission faced, where they had this hierarchy of rules, one of which was to abide by the Voting Rights Act, of course, and then another of which, which is ranked a little lower in their list, was to achieve partisan fairness. And so in their efforts to achieve partisan fairness, the commission members felt that it was necessary to try to break up this overwhelmingly Democratic set of districts in Detroit. In so doing, they made the minority voting age population lower in some of those districts, which then led to a challenge under the Voting Rights Act that those districts were insufficiently, that the, that the minority voting age population was insufficiently large. And so the commission members, and I got a chance to speak to some of them, just found it extremely difficult. This little you know, needle that they had to thread where they're trying to enhance partisan fairness, but also maintain minority voting strength in these urban districts was, was extremely difficult. And that's, that problem is not going to go away. Yeah, that's that's a problem of single member districts. 
which force all these complicated trade-offs. Exactly. I think is is where we're where we're going. I want to ask one more question before I get to the sort of solutions portion of the program and then t- and then hand it off to Lee. I, I guess I just wanted to ask you to kind of comment on the the way that people talk about the urban rural problem for Democrats. Because I, I mean I thought you really in your book just distilled the essence of how people think about that in a really good way. I and mean, you you basically say the way that Democrats have historically built out a broader majority is to dilute the party brand. Or they can do it in a more nationalized environment if there's an unpopular incumbent Republican. But we had to hear kind of for seemingly forever after 2016 that kind of Democrats aren't doing a good job appealing to rural voters. And so the strategic question becomes a moral question. And I wonder how you think that your book sort of speaks to that that debate about, you know, what Democrats should do, um, given this tension. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, what I try to do in the book is really just lay out the problem. I, I feel uh, as a social scientist, I'm much, much better at doing that, uh, unfortunately, than trying to find solutions. And it's something that you all are doing a much better job than I am, I think, of thinking about. But um, but what the, the way, yeah, the way I see the problem facing the Democratic Party is that the ideological distance, it appears in, when we look at some survey data, between the, the urban core districts that are overwhelmingly democratic, where all these Democrats are concentrated, the distance between the, those places and the uh, pivotal suburban districts is, is rather large. And it can seem quite natural for the uh, representatives in the urban districts to want to do things that are in the interest of their constituents. But those things can seem really quite Quite extreme to to folks in some of the um, some of the pivotal districts, which are often kind of suburban or a mixture of suburban and rural, or have something like if you think about Alyssa Slotkin's district, have downtown Lansing together with some very rural parts of Central Michigan, and so figuring out how to please the base and also please enough people in these pivotal districts is is a really uh, difficult problem, uh, and it was one that I feel was solved in the past by just denationalization of politics by having just a very different cast of characters with a D next to their name uh, running in different kinds of districts. And nationalization of politics has made that much harder, but maybe not completely impossible. It still seems possible for some uh, of these candidates to kind of craft a a bit different brand as they campaign in in these non-urban districts. But uh, I think it's hard for folks in the rest of the party to, to understand that they need to they need to allow them to have that that leeway. That makes sense. I realize I phrased the question a little bit like I'm asking you to kind of give advice to the Democratic Party, which isn't the purpose of this podcast, but more to sort of think about, I guess my frustration with the, the larger debate is this kind of need to think more capaciously about representation and the ways in which, as I said before, like the strategy of appealing to a broad mix of voters has turned into this sort of moral imperative that the Democrats have lost rural voters and that's therefore some kind of, you know, moral moral failing. And I, I think one of the things that spoke to me about your book is that it makes very strong kind of numbers case around the representation of cities. And again, as someone who lives in a city in a in a, in a state that's not always very favorable to city interests, that really sort of um, spoke to me on a, on a normative uh, level. So the other Just kind of finally, so as you said, we as social scientists are not always so much with the solutions, but I guess you do talk about representation and majoritarian versus proportional representation approaches. And so I'm wondering if you have a sort of 
takeaway from the book about how to improve representation for urban areas and how that maybe plays into the institutional theme of the podcast. Then I'll hand it over to Lee. Yeah, it's something that I, I think about a lot. And I, I have to say, I, I think I'm still sort of open-minded about and, and, and I'm interested in, in um, I'd, I'd love to have more states kind of engaging in more experimentation. You know, it'd be wonderful to have states that adopted some sort of, you know, list PR and we could see what happens and kind of document that. So sort of in the way we have you know, with these uh, top two primaries and, and now rank choice voting has been you know, rolling out in some places. I think there's a lot of potential. There are a lot of unanticipated consequences of reforms that we'd like to understand. One of the things I think a lot about is I, I do see, um, and I think it probably comes through in the book, I see a lot of advantages in a sort of a, a mixed system like the one in Germany or New Zealand. It seems like it is something that could please you know, some of those who really like geographic representation and think that there's a lot of value in that, but people who are disheartened by the disproportionality of it and uh, of the current system and who, and, and also if we think, and I, as I think many of us do, that it has an impact on polarization and some of the issues that are tearing the country apart. This kind of a system could be, you know, just giving people more choices and creating a, a multi-party system is something that would seem to have uh, value for lots of people in the, in the debate, not just on one ideological side. One thing that does give me pause though, as I think about the broader comparative situations. I think about places like New Zealand and I think about Germany or I think about other Northern European countries that use PR, and these are all parliamentary democracies. And if we were to try to move in the direction of something like a proportional system in the U.S. with a presidential system, this would put us more in the category of Brazil or Argentina. And there's a big literature on how coalition formation works in those institutions. And it's not the same kind of story. It might not. I mean, if we think that gridlock and sort of the problems of Congress are part of what we're trying to solve, it's not simple uh, to think that that a, that a presidential proportional democracy, we need to keep in mind, it would not suddenly look like uh, Germany or the Netherlands. The way governments are formed is very different in a, in a presidential system. And it's something I'm still puzzling through that gives me I just like to see more more evidence, more data. I'd like to think more about what would a multi-party presidential system look like in the U.S. Yeah, that's a great question. I think to to hand it off to to Lee with. So I'll, I'll let Lee uh, ask you some about some of your more recent papers. Thank you, John. That's actually something I've been giving quite a bit of thought lately to, and thinking about some ways in which you would expect to see particular types of coalitions forming, particularly pre-electoral coalitions, which are quite common in Latin American presidentialist systems. But I want to turn to your work. And one of the reasons I was so delighted to have you on the podcast is because I think your work on the urban-rural divide has just continued to become more and more relevant. And what I really like about your work is that you take two variables very seriously, time and place, which I think often get ignored in a lot of mainstream analysis. And I think that there's a this kind of this mainstream view, this this median voter view that assumes that you classify voters and parties along this single dimension and that you know, parties have moved to the further apart along the, this single dimension, but most voters are still in the middle. And that, that creates this puzzle that a lot of people have about American politics, which is, you know, why aren't the parties converging on the middle. And I think it sort of assumes that there's like this state of nature, that absent party competition, you'd have this mass of voters in the center. 
But I think the way that you looked at issue bundling and some other work and, and the, the, the urban rural geography really gives us a more realistic, slightly more complicated, nuanced view of what is actually happening with what we think is this sort of one-dimensional polarization. So this is something that I've been wrestling with a bit, but I'm curious, what do we get wrong about the story of polarization and what can this sort of historical and geographical lens help us to understand in a way that a lot of the conversation I think misses? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Maybe it flows from the, the conversation we were having earlier about how the coalitions supporting the parties have changed and how this urban-rural divide has grown. One of the things that that I mentioned is that new issue dimensions have been politicized. So things on which the parties didn't really have positions uh, decades ago, they now have very strong positions and people understand those positions and people sort themselves into the parties on these different positions. And so what political scientists have tried to do is to kind of cut through all the complexity of this, is to kind of break this down into a single dimension. And that feels analytically like something useful. And in fact, among lots of people, their views on these different issues are correlated. But they're not perfectly correlated. And it's often the case that when a new issue gets mobilized, that people who care deeply about the new issue sort into a party that in the past was not the party they had supported. Uh, And so in many cases, they bring their views with them on the old issue that brought them to the other party in the first place. And when that happens, it can make the parties more internally heterogeneous. And so one of the things that I think we might get wrong about polarization, as the parties have moved apart, as some extremists push the parties to take new positions, or they uh, themselves kind of articulate such positions within the parties. I mean, I think the parties platforms are really very diffuse in many ways. They could be different things to different people. But as these new issues get mobilized, the parties become more internally heterogeneous. And one of the things that we keep saying, you know, one of the things that everyone believes, I think, about American polarization is that the opposite, the parties have become more homogeneous over time. And I feel like observing the kind of speaker leadership circus in the Republican Party just in the recent months it becomes really hard to accept the view that the parties are internally very homogeneous. In fact, I think they're, um, the, the factionalization within the parties and the, the really deep divides within the parties is a part of the story of polarization that we haven't really very well understood yet. So much of the basic literature on the topic kind of begins with the claim, well, the parties, of course, have become very homogeneous over time. Uh, and many of the, the reasons why we say that have to do with roll call voting in Congress. But that is only a very small part of the story. And it may be a kind of a misleading one, given the way that the agenda is shaped by party leaders and how those roll call voting scores might be shaped by strategic considerations. But I think that most other indicators we can look at would suggest the parties are actually don't agree internally on very much. And so this, I think, fits with your largest, some things you've said in the past, Lee, about uh, you know, in a, in a very heterogeneous society with more and more issue dimensions being added to have to just keep the number of parties fixed at two creates this uh, internal dissent and internal uh, factionalization within the parties. Well, I learned a lot of this from reading your your papers, Jonathan, and it's helped to shape how I understand this. But I want to really dig in here you know, and get a little bit more precise on 
what happens when parties have to take on all these additional issues? We think about this as kind of issue bundling. And how is it distinctly different in the U.S. as opposed to other countries that have more parties? What happens to issues in you know, a Germany, for example, within a, a, a party system that has a little bit more fluidity versus what happens in the U.S.? when the parties have to accommodate all these and take positions on all of these issue positions. And how do voters respond to that? There's a lot of conversation now about out-party hatred and uh, the extent to which people feel like the other party is just a fundamental threat. Yeah. And so I think that what happens when a new issue emerges, so, you know, I guess maybe the easiest example is to think about the rise of the environmental movement in Europe and the say like in the 60s and 70s. And this is a moment when, you know, and, it, and again, this, there is an urban rural component to this, that young people who uh, start to care deeply about environmental protection tend to live more often in city centers. And these people are mobilized in many European countries by green parties at about this time. And they start to take over a, a segment of the, of the left, although in some cases, they, they're not purely um, necessarily always on the left. But the, the Green Party sort of emerge and they take people who have positions that are in a kind of distinctive place. And if you think about a multidimensional space, instead of just having it divided up into two big bundles, you start to have smaller parts of that multidimensional space taken up by more parties. And so liberal parties often start to appeal to relatively urban, educated people that have preferences that are to the right of the median, perhaps on economic issues, but to the left on social issues. Something like you might think about your, your kind of Silicon Valley libertarian in the U.S. context. Uh, in the U.S., this kind of voter has to choose between these two bundles. But in European countries, there's, there are more bundles to choose from. And so uh, it has the impact of reducing the overall urban-rural divide, but also it reduces the kind of polarization that emerges when all of this has to be expressed in these two very heterogeneous parties. And so in some of my ongoing work with Gary Cox, we've been thinking about when you, when you force everything into these two parties and they become very internally heterogeneous, what strategies do the leaders then adopt? And the, the kind of winning strategy, the, the, the most obvious strategy is to try to say as little as possible about your own party and its very heterogeneous voices, uh, and to say as much as you can about the extremists and the out party. And really to kind of your whole messaging operation is to convince people that this very heterogeneous out party is in fact controlled by its most extreme voices. And that dynamic really, I think, defines how the parties have been messaging. Just classification of the other party is extreme. That's what American politics, what American messaging is all about. In a seven-party system, that makes no sense as a strategy. You put all your messaging budget as the CDU into trying to characterize the SPD as extreme, the Free Democrats and the Greens and others can benefit from that investment. And so there's not nearly as much of this kind of demonization of the out-party taking place in these multi-party systems. I think of the perfect encapsulation of that as the 2020 party conventions in which I think there was maybe one policy speech from Elizabeth Warren and the rest of the Democratic convention was how Republicans are a fundamental threat to democracy. And then the Republicans didn't even have a single policy speech. And all of it was how 
the, the Democrats were a fundamental threat to America as we know it. And I suspect the 2024 campaign will be more of the same. But this has serious consequences for the conduct of democracy, right? I mean, uh, this, you see the, the growing disaffection with the political system in the U.S. Like demonization is not just a one-off thing, but something that accumulates over time, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that in the cross-country data that I find really interesting is that Americans, you know, we think of, of the parties in, in much of the discourse, we think of the parties as very homogeneous and, and extreme or, you know, becoming more extreme. But voters really, when you ask them, will place the parties on a seven-point scale or a 10-point scale. It's amazing how much they disagree where the parties actually are. And so when you're just looking cross-country surveys, like the standard deviation of what people think the parties are all about is very high relative to other countries. So there's just this room for the parties, kind of message makers, to, to really manipulate folks into believing very kind of crazy things about the out party. I mean, and there have been some interesting papers to just like, documenting the extent to which people believe just really kind of uh, bizarrely false things about the, the demographic and income and other kind of makeup of the out party, which I just think we have more scope for that. And so it, it makes for all of this hostility and the idea that if the out party gets control, democracy is in, in our way of life is, is at stake. It, it is threatened because it's become possible to believe, even though there might be some reasonable people, I might know some people in the other party who seem kind of reasonable, but the out party is a high stakes lottery between those people and these terrible extremists who are bad for America and wish to end our entire system of constitutional government. And it's a risk people just aren't willing to take. They're, they're too risk averse in their sense that these extremists in the out party will, will win. And that plays out along these urban rural lines very much. And one thing you note is that in the, the more proportional systems, even when a party of the right takes over in government, there's usually some part of that party that has a, an urban or a professional class, uh, suburban, urban base. And even when a left party takes over in most proportional systems, there's some part of that coalition that has a, a more rural base. But in the US, it's very much, you know, two very different cultural milieus to two very different ways of life that shape the coalitions, which creates a, a high degree of hostility. Yeah, exactly right. I, I think if you just look at the, the switches back and forth between governments in the US, it really is, um, we're going from an extremely urban to a rural and ex-urban coalition with very different ways of life. And that's what the elections seem to be about. They're like these high stakes geographic battles. And I've been trying to figure out is how does this work in the in the multi-party systems? And is it is this something that actually is sustainable in the multi-party systems? You know, these are also a moving target. Uh, and been doing some work on collecting a lot of time series data on the urban and rural support base of the parties in various countries around the world. And one of the things we found is that often the the large catch-all parties like the Christian Democratic parties and the Social Democratic parties have uh, surprisingly heterogeneous geographic support bases. They're, the, you know, the, the Social Democrats are a bit more urban and the Christian Democrats are a bit more rural. They're not nearly as divided as the U.S. But a lot of the new parties that are emerging, the Greens are quite urban usually, and these far-right parties, you know, these um, uh, radical right parties, anti-immigrant parties, tend to be increasingly rural in their support. 
So as they chip away at the support base of these big catch-all parties that are not very divided, some European countries are also starting to show some signs of increased urban-rural divide. So it's kind of the ability to, to keep some of these parties in the middle is what has led them to be less divided. But it's still an open question as to whether that will continue. And in the recent Dutch election, we certainly saw a big increase in, in the support for the party of the far right, which was relatively rural. You know, so things are still kind of in, in flux in many European countries. But I do think the multi-party system has thus far served as a kind of a bulwark against the type of polarization you described in the U.S. Well, context. I mean, Gert Wilders, uh, my, my Dutch accent is horrible. <laughs> Gert Wilders' party, uh, I guess, got 27%, which was a, a surprise. But you know, as I'm following the, the talks around coalition government, I mean, he's... He, He's basically said, I, I'm not going to press my anti-Muslim stuff because I know I can't build a governing coalition around that. So I'm going to try to soften my position on that. The other thing about the urban-rural divide, and this is something I, I've thought a lot about in the development of U.S. political history, is the extent to which Democrats at some point, you know, once they fell below a certain vote share threshold in a lot of parts of the country, they just said, well, you know, w what's the point of even showing up? We're not going to win these seats. Whereas in a proportional system, a party of the left might not win a seat, but every vote counts. So even if you can get 10% in this you know, country like Germany, where you have a, a, a national compensatory party list, right? Like, you know, the Greens might not win a lot of votes in rural areas, but like, there's still some value in campaigning in those areas because those votes actually contribute to their seat total. That's a really important point, you know, and it has policy implications. So I think that the parties of the right have not at all given up on urban places. So, I mean, in Scandinavia, parties of the right do very well in urban places, but even in further south in the Netherlands and in Germany, uh, Belgium, you have parties of the right that don't win they certainly wouldn't be competitive to win single-member district seats in many urban neighborhoods, but they still have to fight very hard in those neighborhoods to maximize their, their vote share and get more seats in the legislature. And I think partly as a result, the kind of thing in the U.S. that has emerged where the party of the right is just anti-public transit. It's something that just is very clear. Um, the voters for the party of the right see very little uh, benefit in, in urban transit, uh, and the party has given up on trying to win seats in urban America. And so uh, elections are in part battles about, you know, should we build public transit or should we just build more highways and, and focus more on uh, cars? And that's something that, you know, that, that's not at stake in a German election. The idea that we will give up on urban public transit is just not in the CDU platform. It's not something that the right as opposed to, because there are plenty of right you know, voters for parties of the right in, in cities who do benefit from public transit, and it would be not a good political strategy to, to withdraw that support for parties of the right. So given your sort of broad historical perspective, where do you, do you see things going in the U.S. over the next decade and you know, sort of have all, all the punditry about whether Trump is going to destroy democracy or not. But in terms of, of the support coalitions for the parties, I mean, it seems like there's been a little, since you wrote Why Cities Lose, it seems like there's there's been a, a slight realignment in the voting coalitions of the parties. Interestingly, in the most recent 2022 midterms, Republicans actually got fewer seats 
than a purely proportional vote share election would have given them. Yeah, it's something in the last chapter of the book, I do some, you know, at the at the time in, in 2018 or so when I was writing, tried to prognosticate a little bit about where things might be going. And this kind of gets us back to a question that that uh, Julie asked me earlier in the conversation about variation across cities. And I was talking about places like Phoenix, uh, places like Orlando, places like Houston. Well, those are the cities that everyone is moving to. Those are the cities that are growing. And the cities that I'm describing where Democrats are highly concentrated are cities that are losing population. And so it is in the long term, perhaps, uh, the case that this geography problem that the Democrats face could be transforming. Uh, and it's just less less problematic for them in the places that are gaining the most population. But there's still plenty of people in Ohio and Michigan and, and Wisconsin, and the problem is not going away in those places. So I think the heterogeneity of the, the nature of the Democrats' problem is going to continue to be pronounced and maybe even grow. You know, I, I, so I've had some people ask me, like, isn't it just a, isn't your book basically just a you know, nice historical story about this thing that happened for a long period of time, but now it's basically over? And I would say if any, anybody who tried to draw districts in Ohio this last time around and abide by the Ohio Constitution and achieve partisan fairness, as described by the Ohio Constitution, found that it was extremely difficult to do. Just trying your best to draw districts that would, where 50% of the votes would provide 50% of the seats, uh, given the geography of Democrats in Ohio, is very difficult. And the Michigan Independent uh, Citizens Redistricting Commission was sued not only for Voting Rights Act considerations, but also they were sued because the districts were still too Republican even though they tried extremely hard to make the districts um, more, um, to to reduce uh, partisan unfairness indicators. So that problem is still there in much of the country, but there are parts of the country where the problem is is disappearing and it's becoming harder to draw a good Republican gerrymander in a place like Texas when the population is changing so much and Democrats are moving, minorities are moving to suburbs and really very large numbers in, in parts of Texas and, and, and states like that. So there's no one answer to, to where this is going. I think it's um, slowly changing, but the very slowly. Yeah, this seems like a great place to wrap up our conversation. This has been, I think, a really informative conversation. I think that we've kind of brought in, as Lee said, the the dimensions of space and time and looked at how they interact with the institutional context. And I think the other theme that I kind of want to pull out is the way that race and immigration are kind of always waving from the corner and that those in some ways map onto rural urban voting patterns in very predictable ways. But then as you've pointed out in the U.S. context, it's very, you know, not always predictable and very dynamic. The thing, I think the note that I want to leave us on and let you have the last word, Jonathan, is actually about the sort of historical stories and, and critical junctures. And it seems like, you know, there's a very clear critical juncture in your story about industrialization, urban industrialization, and this kind of put these voting patterns on a path that they've found it very difficult to deviate from in some ways, or that parties have found it difficult to deviate from. And I'm wondering, as we talk about things being dynamic, do you think that change will be gradual? Or what would it take to sort of generate a new critical juncture? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the other solution, or, you know, if, if we think the Democrats have this geography problem, then you know, like we think about is institutional reform perhaps a, a solution for them or is um, 
this slow movement of the you know, actual geographic movements of Democrats to new places, is that a solution for them? And then the other question I think you rightly raise is, well, what about a big realignment? That's the kind of thing that has clearly made a difference in the past. Could there be a kind of a realignment that starts to unravel this urban-rural divide? And it did seem to me that there was a moment when Bernie Sanders was making progress, kind of shocking progress in the Democratic primary, with a, some of his views on globalization sounded similar to people in rural America to some of the things that Trump was saying. And there were these fascinating voters who were kind of interested both in Sanders in the Democratic primary and also ended up as Trump voters and, and are still uh, aligned with Trump in, in, in many cases. So, uh, you know, you can imagine a, a Democratic Party that had gone in a very different direction and had adopted more of this kind of economic nationalism and some of the things that the, um, you know, the, the Make America Great uh, kind of coalition adopted. Some of that stuff is still hanging around in Democratic politics and Democratic circles. You know, you can imagine uh, some future world in which that kind of candidate is makes their way. Uh, to the top in the Democratic Party and changes some of this dynamic. I mean, I, I just making this up. I have no idea who that person would be, but um, some someone like a uh, sort of a shared Brown kind of candidate, perhaps on the Democratic side. You, you could see that perhaps. I mean, if you look at his support in Ohio, you look at the precinct level maps and uh, much higher level of support in rural Ohio than than any other Democratic candidates are able to get. And that's in a Senate race. We'll see what happens in the next election for, for Brown. And maybe that's no longer, maybe that kind of crafting of a distinctive platform is becoming harder and harder. But it has been still possible for a while for at least someone like Brown to get that kind of geographically different looking support base than the rest of the party. Mm-hmm. Right. Wouldn't right. Where... It wouldn't rule it out. Right. Back to the weird coalitions of years like 1976 that you talk about in the book. We love a weird coalition. We love to speculate about critical junctures and, and realignments. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jonathan Roden, his uh, recent book, Why Cities Lose, and check out some of his other recent work as well. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a joint production between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Sarah Jacob. Our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. Theme music composed and performed by yours truly. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 